with someone literally live streaming as it happens in real time. We are so glad you're here in the final installment of the Isaiah series. Give yourselves a hand. You have reached the end. We're here. What makes this text so famous? You may wonder why, why don't we focus, if it's the final, why don't we focus on the very last chapter? You may know that Isaiah 56 through 66 is written like a mountaintop. In other words, 56 moves up, 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 chapter 60, 61 and 62, and then back down. Uh, the Bible word for this is chiasmus, but the point is it builds and then in symmetry reflects what it built. So the very summit of this final passage is Isaiah 61, 1 through 3. And that's where we're going to be. If you'll turn to Isaiah 61, 1 through 3. The reason we know it's the summit is not just because of good biblical scholarship and, and literary devices. We know it's the summit because this is the very text that Jesus picked when it was his day to preach in his hometown synagogue. When Jesus preached his homecoming sermon, so to speak, this is the text he preached from. That it is But up here on the screen, I'll show you and we'll set up the story. Luke chapter 4. And Jesus came to Nazareth where he'd been brought up. Now, can you imagine? Jesus has already been ministering for a year or so and his fame is growing. Nazareth. You know how it is when somebody from a small town gets famous? You know how that is? They say, wait a minute, this is Jesus? You talking about Mary and, and the carpenter's boy? This is Jesus. Our kids used to run around with Jesus and they all had runny noses together. That little Yeshua, he's doing what? He walked on what? He'd fed how many? Starting to grow and now his fame. And I mean, you know, Nazareth. Now you remember, Nazareth was not a particularly well-loved neighborhood. In fact, Nazareth had a reputation for being on the wrong side of things, uh, the, you know the old expression that everybody from Nazareth had to live with the little the, the little proverb they said. You remember it, right? Nazareth. What was the expression? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? You know, you pulled into Nazareth and all you saw was Welcome to Nazareth, home of the Double A Judean Regional Little League champs, eleven and twelve A.D. They went back to back. You know, beat the rich Romans one year. You know, but now, now can anything good come out of Nazareth? Now they had an answer. Have you heard of Jesus of Nazareth, right? And now, local boy comes back to preach. Oh, the buzz in Nazareth that day. The buzz. You could, it was electric. People going around house to house. You better get to synagogue early today. There won't be a parking place. And the order, the, the order of service really is not that different than uh, uh, today. They, they, they sang psalms. I don't know if they were southern gospel, but they were, you know, they were in northern Judea. But they, they, they sang the psalms. Recited the Shema, uh, Hero Israel, the Lord our God is one, love the Lord your God, that. They would give various blessings, then there'd be a reading from the Torah, the law of Moses, and then there'd be a reading from one of the prophets, and there would be a preacher called upon to expound upon the prophets, right? To, to preach a sermon. And it was Jesus' turn, Jesus' day, to read from the prophets and to expound upon it. So the moment came, 
And look, you, look you, of all people, you don't need me to tell you how so much of religious, so much of preaching, it's just so boring. <laughs> Somebody goes on and on. This was anything but that. The air was electric. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. Isn't that good? Even Jesus' home church was in an Isaiah series. And he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it is written. That verse always tickles me to think that the word of God is looking up a reference in the word of God. What's going through his mind is, let's see, where is it? Where, yeah. And he finds that you, you don't need to know the place where it's found because you already know. It's Isaiah 61, starting in verse 1. You're already there. You're ahead of things. You get to know. But Jesus finds, of all things, he gets to Isaiah 61, 1. He begins, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. And you know, they're, they're hearing this. They're going, oh, yeah, yeah. This is Isaiah's famous looking forward to the Messiah. One day this anointed one, this Messiah is going to come and he's going to do all these great things. Yeah, he, you know, here we go again. The spirit of, another promise from the past. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. That's how they did it then. They stood up for the reading of God's word and sat, and the preacher sat down when it was time to teach. And the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him. And Luke gives us the first sentence of Jesus' sermon. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. This is the opposite of boring. This is a sermon unlike any other. They were so used, you know, you know typical boring, uh, just these sermons, right? You unroll the scroll, you talk about Isaiah, and it begins. Isaiah was a prophet 800 years ago. He ministered during the reigns of Jotham and Uzziah. He was in the southern kingdom. I was looking at their watch, how much longer is this going to go on, right? This is anything but that. This is... This is Jesus saying, saying whoa, 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 let, let me tell you about prophecies from the past and promises from the future. So much preaching, so much of the Bible is prophecies from the past and promises for the future. And the congregation going, well, what, on, what on earth does this have to do with me today? Watch. In the hands of Jesus, prophecies from the past and promises for the future become a gift for you today when they're in the hands of Jesus. Jesus is what takes prophecies from the past instead of just being, well, these are just boring old things from ancient documents and promises for the future, oh yeah, in the sweet by and by. When the Bible's seen through the lens of Jesus Christ, Jesus is what takes prophecies from the past and promises for the future and makes them absolutely a gift for today in this moment. When you read the scriptures and when you hear them preached through the lens of Jesus Christ, you realize every story in the Old Testament whispers his name. And he's here with us now. And every promise in the future is secured because of Jesus and what he did. So the promises of the, uh, uh, promises of the future are brought in today. The prophecies for the past come alive today because of Jesus. Because Jesus is alive and by his Holy Spirit ministering his word right now to us. So, no wonder every eye was fixed on him. He was proclaiming good news. In fact, Jesus is what makes this book good news. 
So I wanna do two things to finish the Isaiah series. Number one, really two questions. What is this good news? And how can this good news be for us? We don't just want generally good news. How can this good news be applied to us today? Colin Smith had an excellent sermon on Isaiah 61 and formed much of the outline here, if you get a chance. What is this good news? How can it be good news for us today? In other words, how can we apply it? All right, now, you're already in Isaiah 61. Let's look at the Old Testament text. Let's look at Isaiah 61, starting in verse 1. And let's notice a few things. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. Now, anointed here, this is why we know it's a messianic text. It's Messiah. Messiah means the anointed one. To bring good news to the poor, or your version may say afflicted, the meek. What's the meek? If you need to know the meek, the meek, just divide the word in half. Meek. Me? Ech. Someone who looks at himself and says, my own righteousness, my own good deeds, me? Ech. That's the best definition of meek I ever heard. Me? Ech. There you go. It's good news to the poor, to the meek. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Your version may say, why did he repeat that? Liberty to the captives. You may see a footnote there. Opening of prison to those who are bound. The darkest dungeon, suddenly you can see, uh, may, may be translated, he, uh, giving sight to the blind. It's not, not just a physical dungeon, but the idea of opening eyes. You may see that in a footnote there. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, comma. That, of course, is where Jesus stopped reading. Stopped right there in that comma. What is this reading about? Why does he end with proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and then say today this has been fulfilled? Well, the year of the Lord's favor, we gotta do a little history work here. The year of the Lord's favor, also in the Old Testament, it's called the year of Jubilee. You familiar with this concept? The year of the Lord's favor was a capstone law in a group of laws in the Torah, in the law of Moses, that were given by God compassionate laws. And they were given for the protection of God's people, particularly to protect the poor. You're the Lord's favor. Let me give you some examples. Deuteronomy 15.1. Every seven years, all debts were to be canceled. Can you imagine? Every seven years... That's it. Whatever anybody owes anybody. Can you imagine if MasterCard and Visa adopted this rule? Every seven years, that's it. We're starting over. Sort of a Moses meets Dave Ramsey kind of approach. To the, all right. Here's another one. Isaiah, also from Deuteronomy 15. Every seven years, all slaves released, freed. And I say, well, what's going on with this? You could get so far into debt that you could sell yourself into servitude. It was indentured servitude. You could sell yourself into slavery to begin paying off those debts, but it wasn't meant to be permanent. It wasn't meant to be forever. And after seven years, all those indentured servants were then set free. There was meant to be a reset every seven years. Even the land was meant to lie fallow for one year so that it could rebuild nutrients. God, God even has compassion on people. Why? So that their, their crops would be more abundant. He gives them a Sabbath every week. He gives them these great... Uh, compassionate laws every seven years and then there was a capstone there was a sabbath of sabbaths after seven cycles of seven in other words after seven seven year periods it's 49 years they would blow a trumpet and the 50th year the year of jubilee and in that year not only all these debts canceled and all that stuff but all the land that had been purchased 
for the last 49 years would be returned to the original owners. Recall that when, when the children of Israel came into the promised land, remember, who owned the land? Who, who still owns the land? God owns every bit of it. And God divided it up among the tribes the way he wanted. So he, he gives everyone an allotment. Each tribe gets a certain portion. Now, through bad judgment or bad choices or just a famine, you know, it, it could have just been some, you know, but if there was failure financially, and remember, there's an agricultural society. They got agriculture and livestock. Lots of things can go wrong. For whatever reason, if you failed financially, you would go into debt. You would sell yourself into slavery. But eventually, you would have to sell off your land. And if your family had to sell off your ancient allotment, well, every 50 years, there was a reset button. And all of that would return to the original owners. Now, <clears throat> some of you are business savvy, and you're already doing the math on this. And you're realizing that what that means is in every real estate transaction, land was technically leased, never sold. And you're absolutely right. In fact, you're, you're already ahead of me. You realize that the value of that land would change a whole lot based on where you were in that 50-year cycle, wouldn't it? See, if you bought a piece of land in year 48, the value of that land would be very, very low. Why? Because two years later, you're going to have to turn around and give it right back. But if you bought early in the Jubilee cycle, let's say if you bought year one, the value would be very high. Because you, Why? Because you're going to get to enjoy that land for 49 years. So the value would be very high. It goes down. To those of you who are real estate agents, you know today it's location, location, location. If you're a real estate agent in the ancient Near East, it was Jubilee, Jubilee, Jubilee. It's three most important laws of real estate. Where are we in the Jubilee cycle? You got it? You can see also what's going on in this law. You can see the heart of God, compassionate to protect the poor. You see what this law would do. It would place a check on the growing power of those who accumulated wealth so that it couldn't go on exponentially. There's certainly families and tribes that were going to get wealthy and certainly those that were going to get poor. But it wasn't, meant, it wasn't going to go on exponentially forever. There, there was a check that's brought into it, a, a stop every 50 years. It, it, it blessed everybody. It blessed, I think, obviously, we look at this and we say, I see how that would bless and break the cycle of generational poverty. You ever hear the expression, the rich get richer and the poor get poorer? Why? Well, because generation after generation. But you know what also blessed? Wouldn't it also bless the children of the wealthy? See, the children of the wealthy would have to sort of, you know, find their own way in life. They couldn't just coast through on generational inherited wealth. Sort of bless everybody, a new release. And it would happen, and it would happen, if you think about it, everybody could, I mean, at, on the law of averages, it would happen once in your life. You would get to experience, some point in your life, you're a jubilee. I guess it'd be, you know, it'd be better if you'd accumulated a lot of debt and you're 40 and you get the year of jubilee when you're eight. It's not as, but anyway, give me back my toys, it's year of jubilee. <laughs> but most folks could say you get one restart. No other culture had laws like this. No other, no other culture had laws that protected the poor like this. No other culture had a Sabbath, a day off, but God said, you're my people, and you're going to reflect my heart, so this is how we're going to do it. So here's my big question for you. You ready? How would you have liked to live under that law? Right? I'm getting the sense that you're not so sure. Yeah, me neither. It kind of depends, doesn't it? 
It depends. You like that law. It sort of depends. Are you a borrower? In which case, this law is great. Or are you a lender? In which case, this is very costly. This is a great law for the debtor. It's very costly for the creditor. And so, in the history of Israel, how many times do you think they observed this year of Jubilee? Zero. To our knowledge, it was never once observed. Nobody ever blew the trumpet. Why? Because the people with the power tend to be the people with the what? Money. And they had all this money, and they realized how much it would cost them to blow that trumpet and engage the year of Jubilee. So you know what they said? We'll get it the next 50 years. We're going to go ahead and get this next time. By all estimation, the children of Israel, by the time of Isaiah, had been in the land roughly 700 years. So by my way of figuring, there should have been at least 14 of these jubilee years. Did I do that right? 14? Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. And of the 14, not one. The year of the Lord's favor, never proclaimed. In other words, they had not done the law of God. That's what Isaiah charged them over and over with. When he says, you're not keeping my Sabbath, he doesn't just mean, oh, you know, you did a little work last Saturday and I saw you do it. He's talking about, you don't have my heart. You're not willing to pay the price for your brothers and sisters? And that's not surprising. A law like that could only operate in a community of people who really loved God with all their heart and loved their neighbor as themselves, and no one on earth does that. These laws prove our innate selfishness and our need for a redeemer. And so God spoke to Isaiah. Isaiah looks into the future and he sees this coming day where there will be this anointed one who can proclaim the day of the Lord. Who would preach good news to the poor? Who would set those captives who'd sold themselves into slavery? Who would set them free? Who would bind up the brokenhearted? Who would have the audacity and the courage? It hadn't been, that trumpet hadn't sounded for 700 years. Who would have the courage to blow that trumpet? Who would have the power to blow that trumpet? Who could declare the year of the Lord? And who would be willing to pay that price? And then Jesus comes to his hometown synagogue, steps forward, points to the prophet Isaiah, and he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And I'm telling you, it's here. Blow the trumpet, I'm here. I'm the promised one. Translation, what does that mean? What does that mean? Does that mean he instituted some new economic program in Nazareth? No, that's not what he did. God is saying, in Jesus Christ, I'm going to do for you what you guys would never do for each other. You think you've seen love? You've never seen love like this. Why? Because God is saying, I'm going to cancel all debts, and all debts are ultimately to whom? To him. God is ready to cancel all debts to him. You sold yourself into slavery to sin, and I'm ready to restore freedom. You lost your true home. Your true home was Eden. That's your ancient allotment of land. And in the fall, in Adam and Eve, today you're seeing me, Jesus says, proclaim that I'm going to win back for you that inheritance that was lost. He's ready to break all that binds, give back the inheritance. Now, that's hope and joy for us. That's obviously incredibly costly to him. Why? Because if God's going to come in, if, if Jesus Christ is going to come in and say, I hereby write off all the debts, well, to write off a debt, some of you have done that. You've written off a debt. What did it cost you? It cost you precisely that debt plus interest. <laughs> 
And if you want to forgive the $50 or the $100, you say, hey, let it go, don't worry about it. You lose the $100 plus whatever interest on top that you could have invested it, you lost the opportunity cost, whatever. You, that's what it costs to write off that debt. When God writes off our sin debt to him, he absorbs all that into himself. That's why Jesus Christ went to the cross to bear the sin, to cancel the sin debt, to restore the inheritance. God restoring you, that's the gospel. That's the year of the Lord's favor. That's why he came. Now, that's the good news. God forgiving sinners their debts by absorbing that debt in himself on the cross, overcoming it through the death, burial, and resurrection, and ascending on high. That's the good news. Now, how can this good news be yours? And in, in our remaining time, I told you, I not only want to ask, what is the good news, but how can, I, how can Isaiah's message, I mean, how can Isaiah's message be applied to you? How can this good news be yours? Over and over, we see these three answers in Isaiah. If, 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 if when you see these three answers to how can the good news of God be applied to you, if, you're, if, you, if you, in any of these, if you go, well, now these sound familiar, that's, that's because you've been in Isaiah long enough to realize Isaiah is a symphony. And these themes, just like in a symphony, these themes, they appear and they reappear and they reappear. And you'll see that here. How can the good news of the gospel be applied to you? Here's three things. You can write these down. First, recognize your own need. We'll do them A, B, C. A, recognize your own need. Now, we touched on this last week. If this sounds familiar, you're like, oh, yeah, I feel like we just heard this. You did. Notice Jesus says the good news is for whom? I'm going to bring good news to the poor. For he sent me to bind up the who? The brokenhearted. To proclaim liberty to the captives. The opening of prison to those who are bound or blind. Poor. Brokenhearted. Captive. Bound and blind. Nowhere on here do you see the self-made, the high and mighty. No, over and over in Isaiah, what do we see? Those who exalt themselves will be brought down low. Those who humble themselves will be exalted. Jesus was a friend of the poor, but this is more than material poverty. I think these are metaphors. In fact, part of the reason I know these are metaphors, it's not just a social program. He's talking about spiritually poor, spiritually brokenhearted, and spiritual captives. Part of the way I know that is Jesus was talking in a synagogue to people who were literally not captives. They weren't in prison. They were in a synagogue on a Saturday morning. So he's talking about something more than literal prisoners and literal poor, though certainly not less than that. He's talking about more. These are words, all these words are words that the Bible uses to describe all of us because of sin. Think about it, poor. Sin makes us poor. I'm not talking about money. Everybody knows the best things in life money can't buy. But those best things in life, love and friendship and family, sin is what can take those away. But the brokenhearted does not, isn't it true? Sin leaves a trail of broken hearts in its wake. A man forsakes his vows and leaves his wife, and that leaves a broken heart full of little kids. A person lies, and there's betrayal, and years of trust gone in a moment, hearts broken. Parents and grandparents are grieved over the wayward decisions of their children and grandchildren, caught up in sin, they're brokenhearted. What about captive? Does sin make us captives? You better believe it. I've said in an earlier Isaiah sermon that first Satan blinds, then he binds. Caught in addiction. What about blinding, releasing from the darkness of dungeons? Sin blinds us. 
Now, when you hear that God has come to help these people in Jesus Christ, you got two options. You can either bow up in your pride and say, well, that's not me. I don't want to be in my charity case. I don't need to be rescued. Or you can humble yourself and say, that's absolutely me without God. And to Jesus, he even alludes to these. It's to everybody who would say, I'm not poor. He said, are you kidding me? What does it profit a man if you gain the whole world, but you lose your own soul? You got nothing. For everyone who would say, well, I've never been broken, Jesus would say, oh, no, no, no. You're talking, no, no, no. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I've, I've, I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners, broken sinners to repentance. To everyone who would say, I've never been a captive, I'm an American. I'm free. Jesus would say, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. And everyone who would say, I've never been blind, Jesus would say, oh, if you were blind, you'd, if you say you'd blind, you have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. To humble yourself is, of course, to admit, this is me. It's me. It's me, O oh Lord, standing in the need of prayer. I'm the poor, and Christ has come for me. I'm the brokenhearted, and Christ has come to bind up my broken heart. I'm the captive, and Christ has the keys. I'm the blind, and Christ can give me sight. Well, say, say you recognize your need for God. Many of you have been at a point in your life where you've recognized your need for God, and you've already done A, and you continue to do A. You continue to live in dependence on him. Good. Well, supposing you do that, letter B, after you recognize your need, okay, I, okay, it's me, Lord, I'm in need. What do you do? Receive him without delay. Receive him without delay. Why do I say without delay? The spirit of the Lord, he said, is upon me. He's anointed me. He sent me. Jesus will later say, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. He's saying, come to me, draw near to me. Why without delay? Almost every commentator I read pointed this out. Where Jesus stopped in his reading that day. Mid-sentence, right in a comma, leaves you hanging. Go back to Isaiah 61. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Stop, roll up the scroll. To which everybody who knew Isaiah is going, whoa, 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 whoa. Isaiah 61 doesn't end there. That's not even the end of the sentence. It goes on. What, what does it say? To do all these good things, right? To heal, to bind up, to set the captives free. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, comma, and the day of vengeance of our God. Well, that's interesting. He stops right before the day of vengeance. He stops right before the judgment. He says, I'm here to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That's enough for now. Why? Because Jesus is literally fulfilling verses one and the first part of two. He's saying today, this has been fulfilled. You're here in the Jubilee year. And everybody, and in fact, this, there's a big point to be made theologically. A lot of people still miss Jesus because they thought Messiah was gonna do all these things in one trip. And he's not. Jesus is gonna fulfill these prophecies in multiple stages. When he came first, he came how? as a little lamb to die for the sins of the world. When he returns, and it could be any day, y'all, he will come how? It's the line of Judah, the conquering hero. And that means we're right now in the year of the Lord's favor. There's coming a day of judgment. Everybody hear me? We have been now for 2,000 years in that little comma. We're living in the comma. And it's not going to last forever. We're right now in the year of the Lord's favor. When he comes the next time, it will be this great day of the Lord. And it's prophesied over and over in Isaiah. Isaiah always does that. Isaiah the prophet always does that. He gives you great hope 
He does this throughout the book. He gives you great hope, and then he immediately reminds you of, and if you delay, and if you reject Christ, if you, if you go your own way, terrible judgment will come upon you. He does that over and over and over, because I couldn't help myself, and because it's the very last sermon in the series. Look at the very last verses. This is a perfect example of Isaiah. Look at the very last verses of his book. Go to the end of the book. Go to, if, I mean, if you can hold your finger in Isaiah 61 and just flip over a couple pages, Isaiah 66, look at, look at starting in verse 22. Look at this. I mean, what a crescendo. What a climax. He's, he talks about all that God will do for Jerusalem. He's gonna take priests and Levites. Y'all not gonna believe this. He's gonna take priests and Levites. You won't believe it when I tell you. He's gonna take priests and Levites out of Gentiles. He's gonna make even Gentiles part of his royal priesthood. It's incredible. Oh, and, and the nations are gonna to flow to Jerusalem, Jew and Gentile together, worshiping God. For as the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and your name remain. From new moon to new moon and Sabbath to Sabbath, all flesh shall come to worship before me, declares the Lord. Beautiful, glorious, and a perfect way to end the book. But because Isaiah is Isaiah, he cannot end it there, can he? Instead, he adds, and all this glorious new heaven, all this millennial kingdom, all that stuff, they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who've rebelled against me. For their worms shall not die and their fire shall not be quenched and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. Period. Why end like that? I'll tell you why. Because Isaiah, I keep calling it a symphony, and there's beautiful poetry in this book. But in his heart and his soul, Isaiah is not a poet. He's a prophet. And this is not a book of beautiful poetry to be framed in an art gallery or dissected in a literature class. This is life and death. To accept Messiah is eternal life. To reject him is eternal death. And if you, if you reject Isaiah because it's not beautiful poetry, Isaiah doesn't care. All he cares about is that you accept Messiah. And you do it now. You do it without delay. How much longer will you gamble eternity? If you've not turned to Christ, how much longer will you live in that comma? Who knows when the next chapter of history will begin, when that final trumpet sounds. Now, finally, many of you have done A. You've recognized your need for Jesus. And you've done B. And have for many years. You've been recognizing your need. You've been trusting in him with everything you have. Finally, rest in his promises. Notice, after the proclamation of the good news, Jesus Christ comes, after the judgment, then when Jesus sets up his kingdom, oh, y'all, that's a good hymn, when we all get to heaven. What a day of rejoicing that will be. That's not just a hymn. That's, that's, that's right out of scripture. Look, look, look. After the day of vengeance, Jesus, Jesus came, follow me now. He came, he died, resurrected, and ascension. Check, 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 check. All that's done. There is coming his return, and that will be for all those who don't believe, a day of great vengeance. Not yet, no, no check there. Then, after that, Jesus will come and establish his kingdom, and look at what it looks like in Jesus' kingdom, oh, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes. You ever heard that expression, beauty for ashes? That's where it comes from. For, if your translation says for, it's not as good as instead of, I think. Because instead of reminds you that at the heart of all this is substitution, he gives you beauty instead of ashes. You know, when you're, when you're, um, when you're in mourning, 
They didn't just put a little ash, you know, on your forehead. You would, you would dump the coals. You would take the coals. You would dump them on your head. You'd be covered in ash, ashes. You'd disfigure yourself, become ugly to show that this is what's in my heart. There's ugliness. There's grief. There's pain. I'm mourning. So you would, and he says, I'm going to take all those ashes off and give you a headdress, a beautiful a crown. Well, then who took the ashes? Where'd they go? They went on him. The oil of gladness instead of mourning. When you would go into the home of a guest, you, you know, you're going to begin a, a time. You're staying with old friends for a lengthy visit. They would anoint you with this oil. It would be a sweet fragrance to sort of symbolize that our time together is going to be sweet. and We're going to have sweet fellowship. If we get invited into the home of God and are given this oil of gladness, who took the mourning outside the city gates? Jesus did. The garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, a spirit of heaviness. We're given these garments of praise, put on praise. Who took the faint spirit on the cross? Of course, he did. And that's what's coming. Why? Why do all this? So that you, so that they, the people of God, may be called oaks of righteousness. What a metaphor. Over and over, you, you see Isaiah, something's been growing. All the way back in chapter 11, there was a root, and then there was a branch, then there was a stem. And here, in full flourishing, God's people, oaks of righteousness. Nobody misses God's people in the end. You might miss a blade of grass or a tiny little plant. Nobody misses an oak tree. Nobody's going to miss this week what God has done in your life. What does Jesus say? That they may see your good works and what? Glorify your Father who is in heaven. They'll be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord. Why? That he may be glorified. What's the point of all this? What's the, what's the point? I mean, what, what, what's the point of Isaiah? What's the point of the Bible? What's the point of this whole thing? Is it our glory? Is it for us? Is the whole point, is Isaiah writing all this so that, you know, an individual person can have a good life and then when they die, they can go to heaven? Well, yeah. Yeah, I mean, part of it is our individual salvation, but this is for the planting of the Lord, ultimately, that he may be glorified. Psalm 115.1, I read it last week. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory. The point of this symphony of salvation of this ancient prophet is that God may be glorified. And he came by it on us, didn't he? Early in his call, way back in chapter 6, he heard those angels say, holy, holy, holy. Remember that? I think that was like in April. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is what? Y'all, there's coming a day where there won't be a square inch. It rightfully belongs to him now, but there's coming a day where every single square inch of the universe will rightfully say, we're God's. And he will fill everything, the whole earth filled with his glory. Book begins with the glory of God, it ends with the glory of God. And with that, we'll end our teaching on Isaiah. Pray with me. God, we thank you for your servant, our brother, Isaiah. Thank you, O oh God, that though we are separated by thousands of years and many generations, because of you, Jesus Christ, drawing a family for God from Jew and Gentile, we can say Isaiah was our brother and is our brother. And we will meet, get to meet him. 
because what he prophesied, we will rest in those promises, oh God. We will rest in that. I pray if anyone is here and they've not yet recognized their need, they've not yet turned to you, that this year of Jubilee, this day of the Lord's favor, they wouldn't, they wouldn't wait, they wouldn't delay, that we're still in this comma, but we won't be here forever. God, thank you for what we see unfolding even now. We can look around, we see, we, we believe by faith that you fulfilled some of these promises and some of these prophecies, but there's still some remaining to be filled. And we long for that day, we pray that we would bring as many with us into heaven's kingdom as we can. God, I ask for anybody who's struggling with anxiety and, and discouragement and fear, they would cling to these promises, Isaiah. These, these, this is a book about who you are, about your glory. And they would take great comfort this morning in being written into your great eternal story. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God stands forever and it never ends. We pray for that. We pray all these things in the matchless name of Jesus to whom this book points. Amen. I'd like to give you just a chance to respond. Brother Chuck's gonna lead us. And Pastor Scott will be here to receive any who come. If you wanna come and pray, you could kneel and repent and uh, pray about something that's on your heart. You could speak to Scott. It could be though that you wanna pray right where you are. Whatever it is that God's leading you to do, I just want you to be obedient to him in this moment. Say yes to him. Would you stand to your feet? Chuck, you lose. with our benediction I want to read from the book of Philippians verse 3 says I thank my God in all my remembrance of you always in every prayer of mine for all of you making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now and I'm sure of this that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus and all God's people said amen, amen.